Well, we are continuing our series in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus this morning. Last week, we explored the content of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, unable to force his uh, un, un, unable to ref, to force his readers either through eloquence or intellect to trust the truth of the things he was telling them. Paul's only recourse was prayer. He could lead a horse to water, but alas, he could not make it drink. Only God can cause the human soul to drink deeply of Jesus Christ and his truth. He, too, is the only source of eternal water that satisfies the soul's thirst so that it can rest from its incessant searching and never thirst again. Paul's prayer was that the Christians in Ephesus would know this God and his truth, seeing him with the eyes of their heart. And there were three truths in particular that Paul wanted the Ephesians to rest in, and these formed the content of his prayer. He wanted them to know that through faith they have inherited Jesus and all that is his. That God has inherited them, that they were his motivation in the gracious work of redemption in the first place. And lastly, he wanted them to know God's power for those who believe. And to illustrate the force of God's power, the third petition of Paul's prayer, Paul pointed to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. God raised Christ from the dead, Paul says in 120, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. See, God is able to make dead things alive again and to render powerless even the most threatening forces of this world. His is a resurrection power, the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. And God exerts this power on behalf of the church by virtue of our connection with Christ through faith, so that our story actually comes to mirror his story, comes to mirror Jesus' story. And when we come to the first 10 verses of chapter 2, our passage for this morning, we find Paul continuing this train of thought by drawing parallels between Jesus' story and the story of every Christian. Paul sees the resurrection power of God at work in the lives of Christians. In verses 5 and 6, we get a summary of what Paul says in these 10 verses. Look there with me. Even... When we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the echo of Jesus' story? From dead to alive through resurrection and ascension. The Christian story mirrors Jesus' story as God works powerfully on behalf of those who are the walking dead. And I use the term walking dead here not to conjure up images of zombies, but to remain true to the imagery that Paul uses to describe fallen, unredeemed humanity in the first verse of chapter 2. Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians to remind them of their spiritual status before their hearts were filled with faith in Jesus Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Paul writes. You looked alive, you were animated, you were walking about, but your souls were dead 
on account of sin. And notice here that Paul doesn't go with the softer language of slavery even. He doesn't say you were slaves to sin. No, you were dead, hopeless. Every person born into this world is, according to Paul, born dead from a spiritual point of view, crying and screaming and sucking on the outside, but on the inside, there is a dark hopelessness, a deadness in need of resurrection. There's no exception. And at first, Paul describes only the Ephesians with this devastating diagnosis and makes you think that maybe there is an exception. Maybe it's just the Ephesians. You Ephesians were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, who is none other than Satan, the great enemy. This was your story, you Ephesians. And hearing that Paul is speaking to someone else, to the Ephesians, we're relieved by our exclusion from Paul's dismal depiction of them. But then Paul broadens his scope in verse 3. He begins with, you were following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But he pivots, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He reassures the Ephesians that they're in good company here. When after labeling them as the walking dead, Paul confesses, and so was I. In fact, this is the story of mankind, of all of humanity. He doesn't tell them they're in good company in order to make them feel better about themselves or to say it's no big deal in the same way that we justify or approve of sin by pointing out that everyone's doing it. There's no approval here from Paul. Consensus does not equal blessing. Consensus under sin means condemnation for all. Paul's point here is that we all were, and many still remain so, the walking dead. The problem, according to verse 3, is one of nature. Human nature is corrupt and deserving of God's displeasure by mere virtue of existence. The problem is not that we do bad things or that we're vulnerable to bad external influences. You might get that impression if you just read the first two verses where Paul's addressing the Ephesians. Paul lists a number of external forces that influence the behavior of the Ephesians. The course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. There are a number of external factors that, that influence us to act in unholy and impure ways. But if it were just these things, then the Ephesians might be able to think of themselves as victims or merely innocent products of their time or culture or family even. But again, Paul's thought becomes more damning in verse 3, where he makes it explicitly clear the problem of sin is firmly rooted in human nature. We do not just act corruptly. We act corruptly because we are corrupt. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we do wicked things. The flesh, which has become corrupted by sin, produces passions that are self-destructive. The mind and heart both produce desires that lead to death. And this is why it's a misguided endeavor to argue for what should be based on what currently is. 
to observe the disordered passions of human beings and to argue for what should be considered acceptable or normal behavior based on these observations. It'd be as if never knowing what a hammer was, you stum stumbled across a hammer with no handle and concluded that all hammers should lack handles. No, it's just that the one you're observing is broken. And so are we, all of us, we're broken. What's necessary, whether we're dealing with hammers or humans, is for the architect of these things to tell us their true design and what went wrong. For Christians, this is scripture, this is the Bible, the testimony of God the creator, which tells us that humanity was created good, but through willful rebellion, our nature was corrupted so that every human being is now broken, born that way, dead even, and deserving of God's displeasure. We are, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And I understand this sounds harsh. I hear the criticism that believing this to be true about yourself would necessarily result in low self-esteem or a low view of humanity. But actually the degree to which you are able to admit that you were born dead and there's no good in you, that your, your passions aren't to be trusted, your desires are disordered, to the degree that you can accept this about yourself, you will be filled with immense joy and gratefulness at the first two words in verse four, but God. These two words are the most important words of the entire Bible, but God. All of these ugly things are true of you. But God loved you nonetheless and chose to have mercy upon your soul. But God, being rich in mercy, Paul writes, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You were displeasing to him, but God chose to take pleasure in you nonetheless. You were rebellious and refused reconciliation, but God forgave you anyway, even as you ran from him. You were dead, but God made you alive. You were supposed to receive his wrath, but God has shown you kindness instead. Why? Merely because he loves you. Merely because it's his character to be gracious and merciful towards those who deserve neither his grace nor his mercy. Because if you were able to point to anything in yourself as deserving of his love, you would inevitably begin to boast. If you could say, of course he loves me. Look how beautiful I am. Look how intelligent I am. Look how accomplished I am. Look how wealthy I am. Look how moral I am even. How good. If you could say any of these things, you would inevitably boast about yourself. And you would look down on those people who aren't as beautiful or moral or rich or intelligent as you are. In fact, you would tear them down just to ensure that you could maintain the ground upon which you stood. You would have to in order to keep it. You would be filled with pride. But the gospel says that you were dead and he loved you. You can't even boast about being spiritual 
or about the fact that you believed God when others denied him. Verse 8 says that you are saved by grace through faith, but this faith even is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast, because he knows that we would. You couldn't even believe God without him filling you with faith. There was nothing in you worthy of his love. You were dead, but he loved you. This is a truth that doesn't empty you of self-worth. It fills you with incredible joy and and amazement and, and gratefulness that God loved you. The creator of the universe looked on you and he smiled despite your unworthiness. This is a a truth that's worthy of a song, a truth worthy of an entire life dedicated to God, which is our proper response to the gospel. The gospel says God was willing to endure an eternity of suffering condensed into three long, impossibly excruciating and lonely days of divine abandonment in order to redeem you. Because the move from dead to alive was possible only because Jesus went from alive to dead. The move from deserving God's wrath to receiving his kindness was only possible because Jesus left the riches of heaven in order to have the wrath of God poured out on him. The move from sinful to righteous was possible only because the completely righteous one took our sin upon him and paid the penalty for our sin. But the gospel says that Jesus did not stay in the grave. He rose again and ascended into heaven. He rode the sins of fallen human nature into the grave. But when he rose, he lifted our nature out of the grave so that everyone who sets their faith on him will rise with him and be seated in the heavenly places with him. And this is exactly what Paul says about the Christian story in verses 5 and 6, the verses we read at the beginning. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive together with Christ and raised you up with him and seated you with him in the heavenly places. And the unique thing about Paul's statement here, though, is that he puts this all in the past tense. The Christian has been made alive. The Christian has been raised from the dead. And the Christian has been seated in the heavenly places. There are certainly other places where Paul writes about resurrection and ascension as as future realities that the Christian has to look forward to. But here in Ephesians, these are not future realities that one looks forward to, but past events that inform how one lives in the present. If you are a Christian, you have been raised from the dead, and God has placed you in this world to rule within the kingdom that Christ has set up on this earth and is currently expanding in our midst. With resurrection power, he rules over his kingdom on earth through the church in order to redeem the world. As Paul says in verse 10, he has prepared work for us to do in this world, not to earn his love, but as a response of gratitude for his unmerited love. And so he sends us out to do the work he has given us so that we might serve our community and make it more like the kingdom of God by loving it despite its many faults, by working to bring life to things that are dead, 
by always pursuing mercy and dealing graciously with our neighbors, by sacrificing our own comforts for the sake of others. What we have experienced personally is what God desires to seek to, to see take place on a corporate level until the world is filled with joy and gratitude for his free and gracious love shown towards those who are the walking dead. Paul reminds us that we were the walking dead in order to magnify the grace of God, but also in order to sow the seeds of compassion in our hearts that we might humbly and mercifully engage the world around us to look on the world in the same way that he looked on us with love, merely for the sake of love, unmerited and free. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.